This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, this week's episode, the never before told origin story of Sarah Welch Larson as a critic. As a young child, I was walking through the sewer and then all of a sudden I came in contact with this bright green ooze and now suddenly I have a taste for pizza and celluloid. (laughs) I have so many questions about that. You were a child in the sewers. Do you have any cool ninja weapons? There's there's a lot of stuff that I could be asking right now. I Yeah, I wish I had the ninja weapons, but unfortunately the ooze did not give me those particular mutant powers. Well, the pen is mightier than the sword anyway, so that's why you became a critic, I guess. Yep, it sure is. Listeners, we are going to be talking about a tale of some different uh, mutants with our review this week of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. And then we're going to be following that up with another very different animated film for our watch list pick. That's Hayao Miyazaki's 2004 film, Howl's Moving Castle. Sarah, I am looking forward to hearing the theme song that you came up with for yourself after your transformation into the mutant film critic. Should be some other good stuff on this episode as well. Episode 394 of Seeing and Believing. Boys, where have you been? We're just running errands. That's it? Look, we're really sorry, Splinter. Some of the guys wanted to get pizza and I tried to talk them out of it. You ratted us out. Hey, don't use that word that way. I mean, it's 2023. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) Hey, guys, if we weren't monsters that were shunned by society and we could do what we wanted, what would you guys do? Go to high school. Maybe get a girlfriend. Can you imagine that? Not likely. We're here on episode 394 of Seeing and Believing Listeners. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we have to kind of get this out of the way here right at the top because (laughs) we are going to be talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. I can't believe this is what's getting me in trouble. (laughs) And I am shocked, shocked that, well, maybe not that shocked, that you have not, that you not only have never seen an episode of the original cartoon mm-hmm. but you didn't even know the theme song and we couldn't inc- incorporate it into the cold open at all yeah i had to look it up beforehand just to make sure that like i even knew how to spoof it potentially <laughs> and yeah no not familiar with it it's not because of a gender divide or anything like that it's literally because i'm just too young to have watched the original teenage mutant yeah. ninja turtles i mean i might be having a little bit of angst here because i did just turn 40 years old happy birthday thank you <laughs> Um, so maybe I'm feeling my age a little bit when confronted with somebody of such youth that they don't even know the original 80s cartoon. Listeners, welcome to my existential crisis and Mm -hmm. also the first segment of this episode. We're going to be talking about the Hayao Miyazaki film Howl's Moving Castle here in a second. But first, let's talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. This animated film takes another stab at the origin story of those heroes in a half shell. That's from the theme song. (laughs) But this time it focuses a little bit more on the teenage part of the franchise's title. Leonardo, Donatello, Michelangelo, and Raphael are, of course, giant turtles, which means that in addition to the usual angst about fitting in that most teenagers can identify with, they're actively despised by human society for being mutants. This puts them on a collision course with a villain named Superfly, no points for deducing what kind of mutant animal he is, who has a nefarious plot to make the world safe for mutants once and for all. So this is an animated film, and in a post-Spider-Verse world, it definitely seems like it's kind of taking a leaf out of that film's playbook in its animation style. It's a very distinctive animation style, very stylized. So I'm kind of curious to maybe start there and work our way from there into talking about the rest of the film. Now, Sarah, this uh, is an animated film. It has a very distinctive visual style. It's kind of taking a 
page out of Into the Spider-Verse playbook and going for more stylized visual look. Um, so I'm curious to maybe get your opinion on that and start there and build out from that point. Uh, what did you think of the distinctive visuals in Mutant Mayhem and how well did it work for you in creating a very uh, unique atmosphere for the story that it's telling? It's definitely a unique atmosphere. Um feels kind of grody, which is probably pretty fitting for the fact that these are a bunch of teens running around in the stewers. I really dug it. Um, it's kind of nice to see animated movies that aren't all, you know, your typical Pixar, like very smooth, clean lines and blobs. And that's not to say that Pixar's style of animation is bad by any stretch. Pixar is very good at what they do, but they also codified a very specific style of computer animation that I think has been the gold standard for American animated movies at the very least. And a lot of the other studios feel as though they have been sort of trying to follow and catch that style and follow that suit in a way that doesn't allow for creative branching out. And here we get a lot of basically like crayon and pencil scribbling across what is still a very definitely clearly sort of rounded CGI look, but it's not interested in any of those clean lines. It's not interested in having kind of the same face and body shape that you get from a Pixar movie necessarily. And it's also working with a very different color palette, a lot of darkness, a lot of the scenes happen at night, and a lot of very bright jewel tones to sort of punctuate what's going on on screen. So I, for one, really appreciated the look of this movie. It was kind of fun to see the mismatches in between the lines and what was filling them in. It felt a little bit more loose and free than the controlled nature that you get for a lot of computer animation. So I enjoyed it, and I felt like it fit the ethos of the teenage main characters who were just kind of out there trying to break out of a fairly rigid uh, family framework that they're existing in, I guess, for for lack of a better term, um, and who are trying to also find their place in a world that doesn't really know where to put or classify them either. So overall, in terms of aesthetics, I was into it. And I was also pretty into this movie. So Kevin, as an old who grew up with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> does this movie do justice to that franchise or how how did you like it yeah i mean uh we we can probably get into a little bit how this differs from other interpretations of these characters i do think that uh jeff rowe and kyler spears the the co-directors of this film do have a distinctive spin that they they put on these characters that we can definitely get into but the the visual style is definitely it is nice to see something that is kind of taking notes from films like, you know, the, the Spider-Verse franchise, even like last year's Puss in Boots, kind of going mm -hmm. for something that strays a little bit from the, the more rounded, smooth, um, not realistic, but a, a different kind of more polished look that we get from, from mm -hmm. Pixar. And I appreciate that. There's a uh, I saw one critic describe it as having a visual style akin to the sorts of scribblings that you'd see from the artsy kid in math class who just really likes drawing weird stuff in his notebook mm -hmm. instead of paying attention to the, you know, to, to in class. And I think that's really apt. It does kind of, in a lot of ways, capture that look. Um, the next question for me is like, does it work for me? And I'm actually going to disagree with you. Mm. I, I appreciate that it is... Um, kind of ugly and grody on purpose. I'm not going to stand here and you know accuse this film of being sloppy because I think it is very intentional in a lot of its visual strategies. My problem is that I think at the end of the day, it's ugly, but not in a particularly interesting way. Hmm. Um, there's uh, some kind of flourishes that we see in a lot of the uh, the environments and the uh, kind of some of the action shots where we get these these squiggles kind of overlaid onto the image that put me in mind kind of a flash animation cartoons from you know two thousands era internet videos, which mm. you know it's it's a thing, and I'm not gonna say that it's wrong for the film to have that in it. I am saying that it looks kind of 
unpolished and ugly to me. Hmm. And I was not a big fan. Uh, I had a lot of trouble giving, getting on this film's visual wavelength. Hmm. And that was an obvious stumbling block. And beyond that, I just, I'm not sure that the story that's telling it goes in that many interesting directions. Mm. And that's, I guess, two strikes for, uh, against the film where I wanted to like it. It just wasn't, I, I wasn't vibing with it, I guess you might say. Mm-hmm. Either on like an aesthetic or on a plot level, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the flash animation because I didn't peg that while I was watching the movie, but thinking back on it makes perfect sense and as a consummate consumer of flash animations on the internet like you know your home star runners and also your home stucks like that sort of thing was something that i was very much into and appreciated so maybe not so much the teen doodling in math class but the teen who got a hold of ms paint perhaps and then figured out how to put together some of those animations I don't know. I appreciate that kind of almost DIY scrappy attitude towards the aesthetics. So I was vibing on that wavelength for sure. Where this movie does fall down for me, I think, is how broad that plot goes. And I had to keep reminding myself, like, this is a movie for children. And so it is going to be giving a fairly broad moral at the end. And maybe it could have been a little bit more subtle or artful about the way that it was laying out that moral. But for me, I don't know, it also didn't bother me all that much because I was so taken up in the attitude that the movie was giving and then also the aesthetics of the movie that most everything else I was willing to just sort of let slide. Yeah, I mean, I I think I might have been a little bit more forgiving of of the aesthetic if there had been some more more action in it, I guess. Like, Mm. I I kind of didn't find... I found that this film had a lot of longures between the the action sequences. There's a pretty great um, sequence about at the you know the beginning of the film's second act where the turtles kind of uh, have a plan. They know that Superfly's out there. He's building some sort of device, and so they set off on a journey kind of through New York City's criminal underworld and just sort of beat their way through a series of goons trying to, you know, squeeze the information of Superfly's whereabouts out of them. Mm-hmm. And that's all kind of uh, intercut together seamlessly where we're, it, it's not cross-cutting. It's more like it's seamlessly blended. Mm-hmm. So they kind of are fighting their way through all of these encounters at the same time and the animation kind of shifts scenes fluidly um, as they're, you know, kicking and punching and using their weapons. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of fun. I think there's, there's a lot of style and verve in that sequence that I really wanted a lot more of. And to be honest, the film didn't really give that to me. Hmm. And I I think maybe that's kind of why the, the visuals, when there's not a whole lot else going on action wise or, or, visual dynamism wise it gave me a lot of time to sit and sort of contemplate the the background details which isn't a bad thing Mm -hmm. if the film actually has background details that i'm interested in contemplating Mm -hmm. and i think the problem with mutant mayhem is i kind of just wasn't on its wavelength and it just didn't look good to me and i was honestly bored and like you said the uh story is kind of very boilerplate, you know, learn to accept yourself. Don't change who you are just to be accepted by other people. Like that's, it is a kid's movie. So it's not unexpected to find it in a film like this, but I don't think that, uh, the screenplay by Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, Jeff Rowe, Dan Hernandez, and Benji Samet, that's five screenwriters Mm -hmm. all working on the same script. And none of them really find a way to, rejuvenate that kids movie formula and i think that's a problem yeah it's funny because i think where the kids movie formula falls down for me is the rest of the movie was working for me well enough that those the moral of the story felt a little bit jarring because it felt a little bit shoehorned in i kind of want to go back to that multiple raids kind of all blended together into one because it's just such a fun scene did you notice that they kind of built in the old boy hallway fight into that scene at all? I did not make that connection, but now that I'm thinking about it, it does seem very, very much like that's 
the DNA from that scene is in there. There's 100% like just a side scrolling one character. I think it's Leonardo, but don't quote me on that because I am not as familiar with the Ninja Turtles <laughs> and who they are. Um, but I'm pretty sure one of them is just moving along a hallway and some of the movements are, they look almost like they've been lifted straight from that hallway fight scene. And once I zeroed in on that, I realized that the movie was doing a lot of other like loving lifting from other action movies and other films that are definitely not for children. Like I noticed a sequence that felt like it was straight from the opening of Heat. There's a raid involving breaking into an armored car that takes its beat directly from Michael Mann's heat. And then another moment where a character does an Akira bike slide. And then there were a couple of other moments that were homages to other, honestly, better films, but homages in a way that didn't feel like they were quoting so directly that they were pointing them out and saying, this is something that the parents in the audience are going to know. They were just there because the people who made those movies just happened to really love movies. And so they wanted to build off that good DNA. And that's great up until a point. And that point where it breaks down is where you start to have characters standing around declaiming that you, all you have to do is be yourself and accept yourself and the rest of the world will follow. It's a very simplistic moral and it's something that we get from a lot of kids' movies. And so I don't fully begrudge this movie that is for children being a movie for children. I just wish that it had been a little bit more thoughtful about how it had integrated those elements with the other elements that it was very clearly probably much more interested in to the film's credit it does kind of do something newish with uh teenage mutant ninja turtles movies in that the ones that i've seen i haven't seen all of them but mm. i've seen a few um and the impression the the overriding impression that a lot of those movies give you of the turtles is that they're pretty cool mm. like and as as a you know an eight-year-old or however old I was when I was super into the cartoon. <laughs> I I thought they were really cool. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about this film is that all of the turtles are kind of dorks, like, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, they're, that's not uh, totally out of left field for the turtles, but this film really leans into that a lot. And that is, it's interesting to kind of see them, you know, be, heroes but they're also kind of heroes because they want something out of the hero life like they're not doing mm. it because they feel particularly heroic the way the this screenplay frames it is they wish to be accepted and so in order to be accepted they decide to engage in a little bit of heroism a little bit of daring do they literally name drop the avengers at one point mm -hmm. as kind of a touchstone for the way to be popular is to be a superhero and we have to sort of change ourselves into these superheroes in order to get what we want, which is that acceptance. I like that willingness on the film's part to, you know, lean into that teenage part of the, the story a little bit more. I, I think the maybe a problem with that approach is that a lot of the turtles kind of blend together. I don't feel mm. like they have as much individual personality because they're all kind of the same flavor of dork almost, <laughs> um, which, you know, I think that that was a, maybe a missed opportunity for this film to, you know, have them all want the same thing, but the ways in which they want it to be a little bit more distinctive. I think really Leonardo is the only one who feels like he actually has a distinctive character. The others kind of blended in blended together for me that makes me feel a little bit better about not being able to tell all of them apart necessarily like mm -hmm. i know one of them is quoted as having like anger issues like he needs to go to therapy because you know he that's enjoys... his one defining that's Raphael, by okay. the way Good and that's Raphael's one defining trait in this movie yeah and then there's another one who's a little bit more timid and he wields a bow staff and that's kind of his defining trait it's it's their weapons and then just one personality trait that's in there so that does make me feel a little bit better about not being able to tell all of the Ninja Turtles apart, where I really appreciate this movie being about teenagers and really drawing on that teenager feeling is like, they're all dorks, but they're also pretty funny. And there's a lot of good rapport in between the voice actors who are playing each of these teens. Crucially, the movie cast actual teens to voice the turtles. And I 
believe in most cases they were actually all in the same recording studio booth together doing some improvisation. And that really comes across in the film. It sounds like they're all having an actual conversation with each other instead of just spouting lines back and forth through a microphone where they can't necessarily see the other actors. And I'm not saying that you have to have that in order to have a good animated movie, but it did definitely go far for me because even though I couldn't tell all of the characters apart, I could tell that they were part of a family unit together. And that felt pretty crucial, especially because these characters have been living in the sewer alone with not much contact with the outside world outside of their phones and their mentor slash father. And I don't know, like I got the sense of loneliness that those characters had. And I also got the idea that the only way that they would think to be accepted would be to be cool, which is something that's been mediated for them through their phone screens. I don't know. It, it feels like they got what it is to be a lonely teenager who's kind of cut off from the rest of the outside world. There is a shot in this film that I really like. It's uh, where the four turtles are are holed up in their home down in the sewers. Mm-hmm. They're all the they all share a bedroom, and we get this shot of them after they've gone to bed, and they're all you know in the same room together. And they you know there there's the glow of four cell phone screens mm-hmm. as they're all sort of like looking you know off in their own little smartphone worlds they're talking to each other they're they're present with each other but also they are kind of their own little beacons floating in the darkness mm-hmm. and i really appreciated that shot both for how it kind of does capture uh how it does capture the way that technology is uh part of family life now um it really is reminiscent of the Mitchells and the Machines in some ways, which mm-hmm. Jeff Rowe also uh, was a screenwriter on there. So mm-hmm. there's some common DNA there. And I did see the fingerprint, his fingerprints in that scene. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, it was very perceptive on kind of painting them as ever so slightly isolated, but also they're isolated together. It was mm-hmm. a very elegant visual moment that uh, I, I would have loved to see more of. The other movie that this movie made me think of was The Wolf Pack. Like the documentary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you even have kind of the character of April O'Neill, who's voiced by A.O. Berry, kind of coming in as sort of that mediator who's there to document this family and sort of bring them out into the light a little bit. And so it was kind of a passing thought. I was wondering if it was a little bit too much of a stretch. But the more that we're talking about kind of the isolation and longing that these characters have, I don't know if it's something that the filmmakers were actively consciously thinking about but it certainly felt like a connection that could be made there i i did not make that connection at all but i like it and it is true that this film also leans into pop culture as a big touch point for the way that the turtles relate to each other and to the world around them uh an early scene that kind of establishes their it's sort of their part of your world moment mm-hmm. <laughs> um where they you know instead of you know being in the grotto and you know watching uh, a prince on a ship in a fireworks show they're off on the edge of a park and they're watching a bunch of other people watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off yes. on on a, a big screen in the park. It's very reminiscent of the way the kids in the wolf pack use their their connection to movies to kind of make sense of what they want hmm. and also forge a bond between themselves because they're so isolated and cut off from the wider world and yeah that that moment does kind of carry a lot of that film's dna as well i didn't make that connection before but i like it thank you yeah i don't know it's it worked for me and i think all of it worked for me just the the conversation the dialogue the way that this movie looks the way that it captures that longing without putting too too fine a point on it necessarily and again the one flaw that kind of brings this movie down is just the way that it kind of shoehorns in those ending morals for me. Yeah, I mean, I think it does put too fine a point on it, to be honest. <laughs> I, especially as the, the film reaches its end um, and the you know you, you literally have uh, April O'Neil at some points uh, has a conversation with Leonardo where he said where he says, I shouldn't have tried to be something I'm not. And, you know, that's kind of like the button on the scene. It's just... It's a little bit on the nose, um, and the sentiment that it's expressing is 
not profound enough for me to really kind of give it a pass in mm. that area. And there's even a moment in the climax without giving too much away that's pretty much cribbed directly from the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film where all of New York City sort of comes together to help out the heroes. And it just, it felt a little bit, it it felt not unearned, but it felt a little cliched. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I wasn't feeling particularly charitable to the film by that point anyway, because of these more on the note plot beats that, that we've been talking about. So mm-hmm. it, it was just, it was kind of a, a bum note uh, at, towards the end of a film that I was already kind of feeling a little shaky on. It's an acceptance fantasy as opposed to a power fantasy, which I think most superhero movies are. And in this case, at the very least, it's not just leaning on I can kick and punch the best and therefore I am the best. It does sort of fall into that trap just by nature of being about a bunch of turtles who, you know, <laughs> beat up the bad guys in order to get their ends. But the ultimate goal is not just to be able to beat up your enemy. It's also to be able to be accepted by everybody else in New York City. And, you know, again, kids movie didn't bother me too, too much. But it is this idea of these characters just want so badly to be accepted. And this movie wants that for them badly enough that it's willing to give them that ending, even if it doesn't necessarily feel earned. And I do think that that not feeling earned part is just because some of that feels a little bit shoehorned in. I I more appreciate this movie when it's being a hangout movie and then also when we do get those action sequences. Yeah, I think the the giant climax, I, my, some of it might also just be sort of the plot machinery maybe wasn't fully convincing when that, you know, everybody comes together moment kind of seems precipitated by not much at all mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, on on the part of, uh, the the unnamed uh, characters. It just felt a little bit, maybe too convenient. Maybe I've sensed the invisible hand of the screenwriter sort of nudging these these people into a, a an epiphany about the turtles that hadn't quite been been earned. But that might just be me. Mm-hmm. I, it might just be you, but you know, I'll give it to you. You don't have to like it. <laughs> I mean, so we, we have talked about self-acceptance, but there is also a thread running through this film about, uh, f- you know, families and sp- kind of specifically found families. So mm-hmm. these, these mutants, uh, the turtles and uh, Splinter the rat, who here is more of a father, more than a master as he is in, in previous iterations of of this franchise mm-hmm. um they're obviously not related to each other in any particular way but they they kind of do form a very tight family unit that it kind of has a dark reflection in superfly and his gang of mutants mm-hmm. uh, i was curious to know what you made of the film's treatment of that theme as well i dug it partly because i just dug jackie chan's performance as splinter i thought he was really good and i appreciated the other action sequence that i really appreciated was the moment when splinter is allowed to let loose on the bad guys a little bit because Mm -hmm. it felt like it was modeled on a lot of classic jackie chan action sequences where he's improvising with items from around the room in order to be able to get the upper hand and sometimes that backfires on him in terms of the found family themes it feels a little bit muddled because splinter is both found family and actual parent here and i appreciate the adoption thread that's running through this particular family but you have the found family of splinter and the turtles and then you also have found family of april and the turtles and then everybody else who's just sort of along for the ride and along outside the the margins and because those character strokes are drawn so broadly it was a little bit hard to glom on to why these different characters would gravitate towards each other with the exception of our main four turtles who are enough of a unit together that they just make sense together they're siblings already anyway but i believe them as a group of siblings where the turtles plus april works feels a little bit more like just misfits finding each other, but I'm not 100% sure that I would believe them as a family unit necessarily either because they're almost bonded by the things that they're not rather than the things that they are for, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, it, the that's an interesting observation about the the bond between the Turtles and April, which also is, is kind of 
an interesting dynamic in that there's sort of this quasi romantic thing going on between Leonardo or my own. Well, it's more of like a one way thing, I guess. It's a crush. Yeah, uh, it's a crush, not a romance. But um, there is kind of this this sense that she also is on a a journey of realization and kind of self-actualization and kind of the arc that she's taking to become the reporter that franchise fans would be familiar with. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with uh Superfly and the, the other gang of mutants with, you know, Bebop and Roxanne and kind of these, these other mutants that are kind of their own family unit, but have a very different dynamic. Mm. And yet the film seems to try to be, tying them together in the differing realizations that Splinter and Superfly have about the way that their quote-unquote fatherhood is perceived by their quote-unquote children. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not entirely sure that it it works. And again, I'm to me, it seemed a little bit like the, the film sort of pushing it, shoehorning it into a certain mold without necessarily having fully flushed it out to make it convincing well and also not necessarily fleshing out those characters i don't know the other mutants they felt like they were just kind of on the margins as well more like just scenery color than anything else so it's not even so much that the different family units if you want to call them that are so distinct from each other it's just that one feels like a distinct unit and the other feels like it's an amorphous blob that's somewhere off on the side mm-hmm. and i think the movie talks about it a little bit but again i'm not 100 certain that any of those character realizations are particularly earned because the characters don't really exist either <laughs> i mean characters don't really exist i i, <laughs> I know that you 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 like the film more than i do i think that's mm-hmm. maybe where i eventually get hung up on this film is that I don't know if there's a whole lot for me to hold on to mm. in this. It does seem like a film that is really trying to do a lot of coasting on its style. If the style works for you, then you'll probably have a better time with the film. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work for you, as in my case, maybe not so much. Yeah. So that mileage fair. may vary. Mm-hmm. That seems fair. Uh, listeners, that is our review of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. If you've had a chance to see this film and have thoughts uh, either as a Turtles fan or as a newcomer to the franchise, of course, <laughs> we're interested in your thoughts either way. You can reach out to us on Letterboxd. Our handle over there is Pod, or you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We're going to take a quick break and then take a look at Hayao Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle in our Watchlist segment. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. And now we're going to go to the conversation, which is where we hear from all you listeners out there keeping the conversation going from the podcast. So we love to hear from you, especially when you have thoughts about the things that we've been talking about and watching here on the pod. And Kevin, we heard from a listener about a movie that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So uh, one thing that we have as one of our Patreon perks, uh, if you throw your hard-earned dollars our way, is... At a certain level, you get to choose one movie a year for us to review on the air. And one of our patrons, Ron Sturry, really wanted us to talk about The Quiet Girl. We did that a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ron wrote in with with his thoughts on that. He Obviously, he thinks very highly of this film. So he wrote in with a quick note to tell us how much he enjoyed our review of The Quiet Girl. Uh, he's, he says, among other things, the only thing I was surprised about was that you did not mention the excellent acting and character arc of the substitute father, Sean, played by Andrew Bennett. Fair point. We didn't get to that so much in the review. Uh, Ron observes, 
He went from being initially resentful of Kate's presence to loving her as at least a partial replacement for, spoiler, the son that he lost. Ron goes on to ask, I wondered what you thought about the last shot. Personally, I liked it, how it left things to our own thoughts, but my wife felt it was incomplete and detracted from the film. Mm. So that's a that's a good question. Thanks, Ron, again for suggesting this film. Obviously, mm-hmm. all three of us think very highly of this. Um, I really like the last shot of the film mm. um, where Kate is clinging to her uh, her foster, the, the person who's been fostering her for the summer, Sean, mm-hmm. uh, played by Andrew Bennett, who, Ron is right, excellent performance. Mm-hmm. Very subtle performance. Too. Very subtle performance, too. Very understated. Um, and she's, she's clinging to him, and uh, it's unclear what her eventual fate is going to be in terms of is she going to stay with him or is she going to have to go back to uh, her biological family? Mm-hmm. And the last word out of her lips is the last word of the film, and it's dad. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I'm I'm on your side, Ron, about this. I think it's a wonderful ending. I think it's because that last word uh, reveals that regardless of her fate, uh, about where she ends up, it doesn't really matter because the culmination of the film is now she knows what it is to have a father who loves her. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a tremendous ending that is a perfect example of how ambiguity can really enhance a film mm-hmm. uh, rather than just being a cop-out. So that's my thought. What, what did you think, Sarah? Couldn't have said it better myself, honestly. Um, I That was what put this movie over the edge for me enjoying it to thinking it's very good is the way that it's willing to resolve in both an emotional arc that ends for its characters, but also resolving in a question about what they're going to end up being and doing for the rest of their lives. And we don't need to know that in order to still have a satisfying story, while also still being able to wonder about what's what happens after the credits start rolling. So I love that ending. And I like the delivery of that line as well, because that could have been greatly overplayed but again it's it's not doing too much it's doing just enough like so much of the of the film as a whole is it doesn't overplay its hand at any moment it's very subtle very understated Mm -hmm. so yeah um yeah ron thanks for thanks for writing in glad that you enjoyed the review and glad that you uh pointed us toward the quiet girl for us to review in the first place Mm -hmm. uh listeners if you have any thoughts about the quiet girl if you had a chance to watch it with us a couple weeks ago obviously our mailbox is always open so let us know and maybe we'll hear from you on a future conversation segment this episode is brought to you in part by thomas nelson publisher of nine lives and counting a bounty hunter's journey to faith hope and redemption Written by Dwayne, Dog the Bounty Hunter, Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. And now it's time for the watch list. This, of course, is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then we talk about it. So you were up this week, Sarah, for the watch list pick and you selected Hayao Miyazaki's film Howl's Moving Castle. Now, this is actually the third Miyazaki film you've picked for the watch list segment (laughs) in your ongoing project to catch me up on all my Studio Ghibli blind spots. So Mm -hmm. thanks for that. Um, This film is from 2004. It's based on a book by Diana Wynne-Jones, and it follows a young woman named Sophie in a steampunk-inflected fantasy world in which engines of war exist side by side with magicians of all sorts. Sophie falls in with one of these magicians, the howl of the film's title, when a villainous witch casts a spell on her that makes Sophie appear to be an old woman. The question of whether Howl will help Sophie break the spell kind of falls by the wayside for a journey that is thoroughly Miyazakian, as he uses this fantasy setting to ruminate on humankind's destructiveness, the nature of power, and the various forms that beauty can take. So it's pretty standard at this point, at the beginning of the watchlist segment, Sarah, for us to share what the 
galaxy brain connections were between <laughs> the uh, the new release that we review and the watch list pick that was selected to go with it. So hit us with, with your best shot. What was the connection this time around with uh, Howl's Moving Castle? Thinner threads than normal, I think. Um, I think of Howl's Moving Castle as being kind of a coming-of-age movie for all of the characters involved, regardless of their actual biological age. So thinking about teenagers, thinking about coming-of-age, Howl's Moving Castle was up there. Also, uh, there are goo people in Howl's Moving Castle, too. <laughs> and there's a lot of goop in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We didn't talk about how gross that movie is. And that movie gets real gross. I appreciate how you use the adjective grody to describe it, because that was actually the exact adjective I had in mind. So Excellent. So I, I think that's the most apt descriptor you can have for that film. And, <laughs> and Miyazaki isn't necessarily grody, but I do appreciate the level of like... Uh, textures that he's willing to bring to things and whenever something is unnatural and it's supposed to start bubbling out like the um enraged forest spirit in princess mononoke or like the blob men in howl's moving castle they kind of bubble and foam in a way that doesn't look like anything else i've seen before and so when i think of miyazaki I think about his beautiful landscapes. I think about his strong female protagonists, um, not in a derogatory way. They are genuinely like strong, good female protagonists. And then I also think about some of the grosser, like bubbly characters that will show up. No Face and Spirited Away is another mm -hmm. prime example of that as well, if you've seen that movie too. Yeah. So fairly thin connections this time around. Also, I just, I love Howl's Moving Castle and wanted to bring along another Miyazaki movie because it's been a little while since we've talked to Miyazaki. Yeah, it's been, it has been a minute. So um, and I was glad to have the chance to catch up with yet another one of his films. I'm going to be a little shamefaced and admit that I think this is kind of lesser Miyazaki. You're I, not alone in that. This, this is, this one is every bit as visually stunning as other films of his. I mean, I, I love the animation here. I love particularly the the detail in a lot of these scenes. There's a a scene in Howell's bedroom sanctum lair. I like it's mm -hmm. it's it's unclear exactly what it is, but it's just it, there's it's so detailed. There are all these uh magical widgets everywhere and just every surface is just covered in gilded bejeweled stuff that is obviously magical but its properties are never fully explained and it's just it's utterly sumptuous and lavish and extravagant and i love it i think this is the first one of miyazaki's films where i really feel like maybe the story got away from him a little bit hmm. it crosses the line from sort of this you know dreamy dream logic i guess that he's well known for into something that feels a little bit like there's not so much thin connective tissue as no connective tissue between a lot of what's going on story-wise, narrative-wise in this film. Mm -hmm. And that kind of marred it for me a little bit where I was still really connecting with the visuals, unlike with Mute Mayhem, super on board with this film's look. <laughs> but the story just, there, there's something there where there's a lot of compelling ideas. I don't know that they fully co cohered for me. Mm. So... I'm sorry to say, but uh, me, this might be towards the bottom of my personal Miyazaki uh, ranking. <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of people think of Howl's Moving Castle as being one of his lesser ones, especially since it's, as an adaptation, it strays pretty far from the source material. Have you read the original book at I all? I have not. Okay. It's been a long time since I've read it, um, but I can tell you it is extremely different and it involves like portals to our own world on top of everything else that's going on. The conflict is both smaller scale and larger scale within the book. And it's it's a very different take on the same kernel of the story. I kind of prefer Miyazaki's version, but maybe that's because it got to me first and I read the book afterwards. And I think the thing that I appreciate about it is that it's willing to take its sweet time and sit in that atmosphere and sit in kind of meditating on the nature of humanity's destructiveness towards each other. One of the background plots, it's not even really a subplot because it's just sort of happening off in the distance and Howl is actively trying to avoid it, is that the kingdom that Howl's moving castle walks around is at war with a neighboring kingdom. 
everybody in the villages that we go into keeps talking about how there's going to be a war on and they start off very triumphant and sending off their soldiers and their planes and then things start to get more sour and more grim as the movie is going along but it's still something that's happening in the background versus what's happening with our main characters so there's Miyazaki's very strong pacifist streak that's going on in here and the movie's willing to just kind of sit in that atmosphere um and then it's also willing to just sit in the different characters' appetites. I think this is a movie that is very focused on food and on hunger and on people's, what happens to people when their appetites get the better of them. And I don't think that there's really much of a plot piece that really services that. It's just something that's in the air in this movie. And so much of what Miyazaki is, um, like one of the things that Miyazaki is probably best known for is like Studio Ghibli food. And that happens in all of his movies. But I think it's such a strong through line in this one that even though the plot doesn't necessarily hang together, I will be, I will gladly admit that as well. Um, it's still able to carry me through because I am caught up with what these characters are interested in, what they want to consume, and then also what consumes them mm -hmm. as well. That's I, I like that um, that phrasing about how the thing you know things they consume and things that consume them because I think that's one of the more compelling ideas that's sort of floating around in this film and I I kind of use floating intentionally because yes. there's a lot in this film where you're right that it's not trying to be um, fully narratively like cohesive like the the war that's going on. Miyazaki's not trying to really tell a story of war. It's more he's trying to evoke the concept of warfare mm -hmm. in the way that comes into the film. And that's kind of uh, supposed to carry certain associations and create certain emotional states in the viewer. Um, and uh, for it was less effective for me just because I was kind of hoping for just a little bit more to hold on to with some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think where it does really work for me is the way that uh, Howell's great power, we see it as something that enables him to do incredible things, but also something that uh, begins to subsume his, his, his personhood. Mm -hmm. um, that I think is, very interesting. I mean, no surprise from a, a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Mm -hmm. um, you, I mean, you get it. Oh, yeah. Um, I really like how um, Miyazaki gives us all these images of Howl sort of becoming uh, an animal, a giant crow mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of these scenes uh, to sort of engage in his struggle against the the power structures in this world. But how the longer the film goes on, the the more and more he has a hard time maintaining his human shape after exercising his magical powers in, in opposing them. And I think that that's, it's very perceptive about how even uh, just opposition toward unjust exercises of power has uh, a very unfortunate tendency to um, warp a person. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, it's, it's not making Howl a villain or a monster, but there is something about the way that he has to exercise his power that unavoidably uh, means that he loses a little bit of himself in doing that. And I really think that's compelling uh, in this film. And I, 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 I really, I found it more effective, I guess, than the, the anti-war commentary almost. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is even a villain in this movie? I mean, I, I one one of my quibbles with the film is that the witch who initially casts the curse on Sophie feels like she's going to be the villain, and then she kind of isn't anymore. She's still in the movie, but she kind of is turned into a sidekick, which is interesting, and it's a move that's very Miyazakian yes. to take uh, a previously villainous figure and and turn them sympathetic. In this one, I'm not sure that I was brought along for the ride as much as I, I have been for other films where that sort of thing happens. Mm -hmm. Um, like you, you Baba or even no face in, in spirited way, for example, like those, I felt like there was a little bit more bringing me along with that, but it does feel like this film, if it has a v true villain at all, 
Yeah, I don't know. There are lots of villainous characters, but there's no like one evil force that everybody is sort of struggling to overcome, mm-hmm. which I think is part of the point. Yeah. Uh, that Miyazaki is saying like you can't, it's not like a video game where you beat the boss and everything's okay again. Yeah. Um, it makes, it really makes me wish that we could get a Miyazaki uh, adaptation of Wonder Woman. Because mm. my big, my big complaint about the the Gal Gadot Wonder Woman film, uh, directed by Patty Jenkins, is that it's the best superhero movie ever made. Up until the point where they're like, "Oh no, Ares did it. It's all Ares' fault that World War One is happening. So beat him up, and everything will be fine." Yeah, <laughs> and that irks me so much and i really wish that we could get like a miyazaki to swoop in and redo that movie except not pinning all the blame on a single uh individual villain yeah yeah i think if miyazaki had done anything with wonder woman the character i think he would have done something very similar here where in the act of fighting even an embodiment of war, I think the main character would have somehow been subsumed a little bit by the action in opposition there. The same way mm-hmm. that Howl is turned into a crow here. Um, I kind of love what Miyazaki does with the Witch of the Waste. I feel a little bit uncomfortable again with the way that the character is embodied at the beginning. We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. When we talked about Paprika, Paprika, I had some misgivings about the way that that movie treats one of its characters, specifically in terms of the way that it shows large people to be monstrous. Like, I don't like that trope. I don't appreciate it. And Miyazaki does fall into that trap a little bit here, too. Crucially, I think, when the Witch of the Waste is transformed back into her own age and her actual age, she, she still maintains a lot of that size and she's not made villainous or monstrous for it. Um, so that's kind of my my comparison between the way that that trope is used in Paprika versus how it's used here. I still don't think he does it perfectly, but it works a little bit better for me. And I like that even though the Witch of the Waste becomes a sidekick, there's still a little bit of an edge to her and there's still a little bit of that selfishness that's maintained there. She's willing to steal somebody else's heart at the very end. And she's doing that actually literally. And it's because she's always had that be her final goal. Like that's the appetite that she's always had is that she wants to literally possess Howell's heart because she wants him. And she's only really fully, not really redeemed, because I don't think that this movie is really working in terms of redemption, I think, in the way that we would use that word. Um, But the way that her character is made more whole again is when she finally is willing to let go of that appetite and let go of that lust for a character who doesn't really want all that much to do with her in the first place. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because that's another one of the elements of the film where I I felt like Miyazaki was really um, leaning hard into evoking the idea of of love, of of the center of personhood as represented by uh, the business around people's hearts. They talk about, you know, how stealing the hearts of beautiful young women or, you know, the Wicked Witch of the Waste desiring to take Howell's heart for her own. And it do, it does kind of, it feels very, a little abstracted to me, but I'm curious to hear from, since you, you love the film, uh, kind of what you make of that. It felt abstracted to me, but maybe I'm missing something. So I want to hear your take on that. Part of the magic for me is that the movie actually makes it fully literal. When Howl becomes the wizard that he is, it's because he makes a deal with a demon who takes his heart and owns it so that the two have a pact and he can use that demon's power. And I think it's telling that that decision is made when Howell is a child and doesn't fully understand the consequences of his actions, but they're going to keep reverberating throughout the rest of his life. And I go back and forth on this because I don't know that the central romance in the movie fully manages to hold up because it is so abstracted, because Sophie falls in love with Howell and that's how their respective curses are able to be broken. The curse on her to be an old woman and the curse on him to be, you know, literally enslaved to a fire demon. Um, That notion of love that the two have for each other feels a little bit more like kinship to me than anything that feels particularly romantic. And yet the movie feels like it's 
speaking about the concept in romantic terms. Maybe it's something that's being lost in translation. I'm not entirely sure. But I do think that the movie is very cognizant of each person's, like, what it is that makes them them. And when that themness gets warped for destructive purposes, that's where things tend to go wrong. And I think for how part of it is his selfishness and using his magic only to aid himself and to give himself, you know, worldly riches or the the shiny things that you, you find within his castle, whereas a lot of the other wizards within the kingdom as they're recruited for the war kind of get consumed by their desire to serve the king and also fight in that war. And they literally become completely monstrous and they're monsters with ravening teeth. Like they have that desire to devour and that's all that they're able to be like, that's all that they're able to do. And I think the the power of Sophie as a character is that she's able to maintain her hold on who she is, even when she doesn't appear like she necessarily is. That feels a little bit rambly, but I think part of it is Miyazaki sort of equating this idea of love and personhood kind of into the same concept. And Mm. sometimes when they're mashed together, they work. And then sometimes when they're mashed together, they don't fully carry through all the way. Mm. Yeah. I like the, uh, um, the idea of dignity. One thing that I did appreciate about this film was the way it portrays elderly people. Mm -hmm. Um, the way that, you know, the, the Wicked Witch, whatever the flaws are in her initial uh, depiction when we first meet her, when she experiences a turn about the halfway point of the film, she kind of becomes a much diminished uh, older woman who's mm-hmm. um, maybe not like she, she's not as formidable and imposing. She's kind of spacey mm-hmm. <laughs> um and, and the way that sophie then treats her is as a grandmother she even calls her grandmother mm-hmm. um and the the way that she's portrayed she's got kind of this expression on her face and it's it's all in the animation i think this is why i really like miyazaki's films is kind of these touches in in that in terms of the dialogue um and the narrative machination surrounding the witch you wouldn't necessarily see this but when you see the way that miyazaki animates her um she does there's this gentleness and this tenderness i guess in the way that she's portrayed that i found very appealing and also found very appealing how sophie herself upon discovering that she is you know she has been ensorcelled to look like an old woman it's not a horrifying thing it's something that is obviously you know, something that she doesn't want to have happen to her because she, she's not actually 90 years old. But mm-hmm. um, the way that she treats her transformation and the way that other characters treat her, her transformation is not as something that's it's horrifying to be old. It's just um, it's just another stage of life. And Sophie even a couple of points observes that it's nice to be old because you have less to lose or it's nice to be old because of this or that. And I think that kind of um, equanimity about about uh, age and the aging process and elderly people, I, I really appreciate about this film. It felt very humane. Yes. And I really liked that. Yeah. Sophie even says that her clothes all suit her now. Like she kind of is She's treated an like an old soul to begin with. And that curse is something that I think reveals something very true about Sophie's character, even though it isn't necessarily true to who she is at that specific point in time. And crucially, I think it also helps her live into who she is a little bit more because then she learns to deal with being that older person and eventually comes to accept herself in a way that I don't think she ever was able to before she gets cursed if that makes sense yeah and the way that her age kind of shifts back and forth over the course of the film so we we come to discover that one way that she her youthful appearance is restored is when she professes her love for for howl it's it's that that feeling that sort of transforms her slash breaks the spell it's a little bit hazy and probably on purpose Mm -hmm. um but she will at some points kind of revert to her younger self visually and then um in the next scene you know she's back to being you know an elderly woman 
And then by the end of the film, she does have kind of her youthful face back, but her hair is still silver. Yes. And I really liked that touch about how even though, you know, she her spell was quote unquote broken and she is no longer that that older woman, um, there's still she carries that experience with her. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's remarked upon at all, but it's it's there. And I think Howell even tells her, your hair is like starlight. Yes. And it's, uh, it's such a, a lovely little touch um, that, and that, that's why I'm like, even though I have problems with the film, I think those little touches, I'm still positive on the film overall because it may not cohere, but I think beauty in some ways is, is its own reward. <laughs> yes. And uh, like, there were so many parts of this film that are just enchanting. Yeah, absolutely. Especially the magic and the way that the magic is animated and put together and the characters kind of treated as both completely mundane and also wonderful at the same time. I keep thinking about the way that Howell moves the house. He says to everybody, like, we're moving. And then he goes outside and draws a couple of sigils on the ground and he goes inside and he draws a couple of sigils on the ground, makes everybody like sit on a table out of the way and stands there. And then he does the thing where Miyazaki characters have their hair stand on end because something wondrous is happening. And we watch the house grow additional rooms and features. And you can see a lot of the woodwork starting to come out of the walls and the wall sprout wallpaper. And it's not animated organically, even though I used a lot of like growing terms to talk about it. Um, It feels matter of fact And maybe that's just because magic is just a part of everyday life in this world. But it's something that feels both wondrous and also like very believable at the same time. It's got a weight and a heft to it, which I really, really like. Yeah. And the sound work is a lot of fun, too. It's sort of like a a bathroom pierce and just kind of has this sort of like balloon sound. Just like, (laughs) yes, Uh, every movie about wizards should just be animated just because there's there's things that Miyazaki is able to do with animation that you could probably do with CGI in a live action film, but just, it wouldn't look as good. And Mm -hmm. it looks so good. Like that, that scene where Howell reconfigures the castle, it just, it feels right and it magical and mundane at the same time. And I don't know that you could really achieve that same quality with a blend of live action and computer generated imagery. I just, I don't know that could quite work. Um, I also really like there's kind of a wizard's duel that happens uh, at the beginning of the third act where Howell confronts uh, his former mentor, who is now the uh, kind of the royal magician for the king who's waging this war. Mm -hmm. And the confrontation they have is a magical confrontation, but so abstracted and strange that I was really on board for that. And just like thinking back to the wizard duels in Harry Potter where they're just like shooting lightning bolts out of their wands. I'm just like, man, why isn't Miyazaki, Miyazaki should remake Wonder Woman. He should remake the Harry Potter movies. Like just give Miyazaki all the movies. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The thing that strikes me about that scene too, is Howl and the other witch, the witch that he's dueling, both of them are completely static the entire time. She's seated and he's standing there and Everything that happens, you know, they're not waving their arms or they're not saying anything. We just suddenly get treated to uh, waves coming out of the wheelchair that the witch is sitting on that engulf Howl and Sophie. And then the bottom falls out underneath them and suddenly they're standing in the air, literally. And all of that is treated, again, very mundanely, at least by Howl. It's something that's a little bit more um, both magical and terrifying, I think, for Sophie in the moment. But... It's also treated at face value and I think treated as seriously as something like that should be treated. Like Miyazaki understands that this isn't just something that's frivolous. This is actually very difficult. And it also has powerful consequences for these characters. At one point during that duel, I think Howell does something to something else a little bit further away and then he starts to sprout feathers on his hands. That might be in a different scene, but he does do magic. And even though he's doing it sort of like tossed off and almost frivolously, it does have physical consequences for him as a character. And we get to see that toll on him. And he tries to hide it from Sophie, but it's something that is just going to be the reality of what he's doing. He can't escape the consequences of the actions that he t- that he takes. Yeah, I I, I love that duel. And I, I just think Miyazaki is so good at taking 
a world, you know, kind of making the world magical. I mean, obviously he shows actual magic, but also just the way that he's able to express it on screen um, feels qualitatively different from just throwing a bunch of uh, outlandish things and imagery up for us to see. The, the way that he integrates the the uh, the grounded, the realistic with the magical, I think kind of trains the brain subconsciously to sort of see the magic in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why even when I'm not entirely you know, on the wavelength of a story in a Miyazaki film, I'm always glad that I've watched it because they all seem to have that kind of quality that kind of re-enchants the the rest of the world. Very, again, very Tolkienian. Yeah, you get the sense watching a Miyazaki movie that he's most enchanted by beautiful landscapes and by the concept of flight. Mm-hmm. And Clouds. Mm-hmm. He, he, you always get those clouds and blue skies in a Miyazaki film. And the flying machines, too. And those are very grounded because he understands the principles of what it takes to make something like that fly. But it's still something that's wondrous for him. And then by extension, it's wondrous for us, too. Yeah. Well, it was a wondrous film. Thanks for sharing it with me. Glad Listeners, that is our review of Howl's Moving Castle. If you watched along with us, uh, let us know your thoughts on this. You can hit us up on Letterboxd or on emails we've already shared we're going to move out of the realm of of dreamlike whimsy i guess with next week's episode the new release that we're going to be talking about is the last voyage of the demeter which sarah you shared as a film that you'd been really looking forward to at the beginning of the year so we're going to find out if it was worth all that hype when we talk about it next week and i'm going to pair it with another movie about being trapped on board a vessel where death is almost certain (laughs) Uh, with uh, Wolfgang Pearson's 1981 film Das Boot of course uh, very famous Um, it's available to rent on demand Uh, you can check it out on Amazon but that was a film that we were originally going to talk about when we did our dad movies episode yes Uh, we ended up not doing it but I'm going to bring it back for this one. (laughs) It's time. I'm ready for a good old-fashioned dad movie, and especially one that seems like it's, you know, just soaked in dread. Feels appropriate for mid-August. I don't know why. That's just how it is. Three-hour World War II movies. I mean, what could be more dad-like than that? (laughs) Uh, Listeners, uh, join us next week for that conversation. Should be a good one. Uh, But as for this week, that'll do it. We're all done. Thanks so much for joining us. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.